good morning. Joy to be with you this morning to worship. Thank you, worship team. I one the one thing I regret when I'm called upon to preach is that I usually don't get to participate in being a part of the worship team. I'm thankful for being able to work with them week in and week out and be a part of that. And uh, so I appreciate all that you guys do. Thank you, those in the sound booth, the media team. I appreciate all the hard work you put into our worship services as well, which allows those of you that are watching online to join with us as we worship. So those that are watching, we are thankful that you're here. Uh, and Pastor and Carol as well, we're grateful that you're able to join us in worship, and we look forward to your return. We want to rejoice when there's opportunities to rejoice as a church family, and together this morning we do want to rejoice in the birth of Kendall Elizabeth Butcher to Valerie and Chase Butcher, Valerie, formerly Kanachi, if you don't know who that is. Um, so we make sure you say something to the grandma and grandpa or what. Pops and Nona. Everybody's good, so so we definitely want to rejoice with them. Thank you. You're a beautiful church. The view from up here is a lot better than probably the view you have. I'm thankful to be up here as as always. It is with joy and humility, as well as great fear and trembling that I stand before you this morning, having been afforded this opportunity to proclaim God's word to you. So let's begin by first going to the Lord in prayer, and then we will look to our text this morning found in Titus chapter 2. So let us pray. Our great and glorious God, we turn to you this morning that you would guide us in the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of your holy word. May we receive what you have to say to us with humility and with a willing heart. We praise you and we thank you for giving us your word, that we might know you, Lord, that we may find salvation within its pages. I pray that you would guard my tongue, that the words that I speak this morning would reflect the truth contained in your infallible word. May you receive all the honor, praise, and glory. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, once again, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, reading the first 10 verses. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his eternal, inerrant, and holy word. 
And may the Holy Spirit write its truth on our hearts. You may be seated. When I was in seminary many years ago, for our chapel services, in addition to having outside pastors, preachers uh, come and speak to us, we would also have the opportunity to have our professors preach. With the chapel schedule that we had and the rotation, we were able to hear each professor about twice a year. And we had, we had chapel every day, uh, and it, the, the service was only a half hour long, which meant that the speaker usually only got about 20 minutes worth of preaching time after there were some announcements and, and usually a song of worship. Now, any good preacher will tell you that it's nearly impossible to exposit a text of Scripture in only 20 minutes. I should also point out that at our school, uh, our lunch period, we had like a f one free period that everybody had, was immediately following chapel. So many of the visiting speakers would go over time, which was training for all of us would-be pastors to recognize what their church members would be going through when we go over time. But when our professors spoke, they knew the school schedule and they had compassion on us students. And they did their best to fit in their message into that 20-minute window. But there was one professor who would bring the message that he had prepared. And when his time was up, he would look at the clock and he would just stop and say, we'll save that for next time. Right at the, We had some chapel from 10 to 10.30. 10.30 on the dot, he stopped. And he said, we'll save that for next time. His next time might be six months from then. And he would pick up right where he left off. Most of us probably didn't remember where he left off, but he would just go right into it. Well, today I'm taking a page out of my professor's book, and I'm going to continue where I left off last time. Now, I'm not, I'm not finishing a sermon that I was in the middle of preaching, but I am sort of continuing a thought, or maybe we could look at it as a series, in a, a, the second in a series of messages um, that I was able to preach a few months ago. For those of you that with really good memories, you might recall that back in January, I preached from Acts 20, and I talked about the requirements of and responsibilities for elders in the church. As we went through our passage in Acts 20, there was application for all church members, but it was primarily directed toward our elders, and given the fact that this year, coming on in January, we had three new elders, I thought it was fitting to, to preach that message, and so we focused on the call God had placed on elders and what that meant. Well, today we're going to be focusing on the responsibilities of all who profess Christ as part of this local body of believers, as well as it should be for any local body of believers. And so as we work through our way through Paul's instructions to Titus, we are going to be taking our church's temperature. You see that as the title of our message this morning. Now, this, of course, is referring to the text that uh, Mark read for us in our invocation from Revelation 3. In the letter to the church at Laodicea, we see that this church was described as being lukewarm, being neither hot nor cold in their service to the Lord. Now, Re Revelation 3 is not our primary text this morning, but I did want to take some time to point out what I believe to be a common misinterpretation of this text. Jesus tells this church that he would prefer that they be either hot or cold, and some have said that this means that Jesus would rather have us outright reject him than to sit on the fence. 
Now, I do believe that those who sit on the fence, those who profess to be Christians but show no fruit of repentance, are quite harmful to the church and to the preaching of the gospel. But I believe that the best understanding of this metaphor is that Jesus wants his followers to be useful to the kingdom, much like hot water is useful for its therapeutic purposes and cold water is useful for its refreshment. Laodicea was positioned between two cities, Hierapolis and uh, Colossae. Hierapolis had medicinal hot springs. Colossae had cool, refreshing mountain springs. And they had aqueduct systems that would bring the water from both of those cities to Laodicea. Well, by the time either of these water sources found their way to the city, it would be lukewarm. And most who would travel through the city and unfamiliar with the water would take a sip and immediately spit it out of their mouth. The warning to the church at Laodicea was, not, was to not mimic the temperature of their water. They were to be either hot or cold, providing usefulness to the kingdom of God. So this morning, we are looking at taking our church's temperature and see if we are hot or cold in fulfilling the duty to which God has called us, and hopefully we will, be, we will not be found to be lukewarm. Well, we are taking a brief, a brief break, as you can see, from our study through Matthew's gospel. Uh, we'll take a few weeks off. Uh, next week, Pastor Greg will be bringing us a Palm Sunday message, and then, of course, that will be followed by an Easter exhortation. And so this is a standalone message, and whenever we have a standalone message, whenever we just take a topic or, or a subject and we're going to a set of verses, it's always good for us to look at that passage of Scripture in its full context. So we're not just pulling a section out and just trying to make it and twist it into whatever we want it to say. We need to look at it in the full context of the book. Well, the book of Titus is one of Paul's letters, specifically one of his pastoral epistles. Much like the letters to Timothy, this letter was written to a young pastor who was facing some difficulties through opposition from within the church he was ministering. Titus was a Gentile believer who was led to Christ by Paul, possibly during his first missionary journey. And we can learn from Paul's letter to the Galatians that Titus would be one of Paul's traveling companions and also part of his innermost circle. Through this time, Titus would have learned much from Paul, which would have included how to contend with false believers and false teachers. And then from the introduction of this letter, we see that Paul had traveled with Titus to the island of Crete and subsequently left Titus there to build up the church and the elders there. And Titus is the pastor, the elder of this church, and his, his duty was to build the church and build up other elders to lead this church. Now, this letter is certainly more practical than it is doctrinal, as many of other, Paul's other letters were. Paul, in many of his other letters, Paul focused a lot on doctrine, teaching doctrine to whoever he was writing to. Now, it appears that Paul was confident in Titus's understanding of doctrine and theology, as there's not a lot of explaining and defending of doctrine, but primarily an encouragement in godly living. The first chapter of this letter talks about the qualifications of elders within the church. We looked at some of that when we studied Acts 20. One of the qualifications found in, in, that, in that chapter was that elders be able to defend the sheep from the attack of wolves. 
of those false teachers who would seek to divide and destroy the church. Well, that same admonition was given to Titus as there were false teachers that were threatening his church. Titus chapter 1, if you go to Titus chapter 1 and you look at verses 10 through 11, it says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then the, the first chapter ends with this statement in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Which leads us into where we are in chapter Two, and that leads us to our first major point is we're going to go through these different exhortations to us today as a church. So if you're following along in your sermon uh, handout, there's not as much as there normally is. I gave you some simple points. Uh, you can uh, follow along on the app if you'd like or take notes in your bulletin. But you see our first major point, our first exhortation is an exhortation to the pastor. Okay, now, I mentioned that this, message and th that this message and this passage is primarily focused on the congregation of the church rather than its leaders, but it doesn't mean that there isn't any charge to those in church leadership, and it's found in the first verse of this chapter where we find an exhortation to the pastor or to the elders. So we have this transition in verse 1 of chapter 2, but as for you, that goes along with the verse that we just read in, at the end of chapter 1 in verse 16. We said they are detestable, they are disobedient, they are unfit for any good work. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This command to teach or to preach or to speak is one of 11 imperatives that's given to Titus throughout this letter. Who has he, Titus, who has been given the responsibility to oversee this flock. And along with this one, he is told to rebuke, to encourage, to warn, to remind, and others which highlight the, scripture, the scriptural mandate that is given to pastors and to elders to take care of God's church. And it is not a responsibility to be taken lightly. We talked much about this in, in greater length when we went through Acts 20 together. But just as a reminder, pastor and elders are to guard the flock from those who would seek to devour and divide. It's not a suggestion. It's not even a be on the lookout in case this happens. It's when this happens, when the wolves come, take action. In this command to Titus, Paul is encouraging this pastor to prepare his flock for these attacks. Well, this exhortation to teach sound doctrine would help ensure that the people would be able to recognize false teaching when it arises. And as much as there was a need for this in Titus's day, it seems to be even greater in our day. With the internet and the explosion of social media and other forms of communication, people are exposed to teaching on a much larger scale. So when pastors fail to equip the person in the pew or the chairs with how to recognize false teaching, Satan finds it much easier to infiltrate the church. We need to stop getting our theology from YouTube and TikTok. I'm not saying that these aren't valuable resources. I'm not saying that there aren't 
solid people who study the Bible that use YouTube, who might even use TikTok, that use other forms such as Facebook and other, and they, they, they do blogs and podcasts. I'm not saying that those mediums are not filled with sound teachers, but we need to be able to discern what is, be, what is being presented to us. And if we are listening to those solid teachers, we need to understand that those teachers that we listen to, they are not our pastor, they are not our elder, they are not ones to whom they will give account for our souls. And we need to make sure that whatever they're telling us lines up with what our pastors tell us, what our elders are teaching to us. If it's good, it will line up with hopefully what our church is t- teaching. If our church is listening to this exhortation to teach sound doctrine. As I said, there are pastors who have podcasts, and it can be a great ministry tool. I don't have a podcast. I'm probably one of three pastors left in the world that does not have a podcast. <laughs> Me and Pastor Greg and my father-in-law over here, Jeff, he doesn't have one. Uh, he doesn't have a podcast either. But, uh, yeah, every, it seems like every church, every pastor has a podcast now. It doesn't matter if you have, only have three listeners. Everybody has a podcast, okay? But even if I did have a podcast, and if I had thousands of listeners, those listeners are not the ones whom God has placed under my charge. It is those who comprise this church, who who it's God has called me to serve, that I will be held accountable. And to all who do listen to podcasts, who watch YouTube videos, or maybe you're old-fashioned and you still like to read these old-fashioned little things called books, maybe you like those. We must realize that those podcasts, these bloggers and these authors, they're not our pastors, they're not our elders. God has given that authority to the local church. So it is of vital importance that church leaders guard the flock from the influences of false teachers who use these platforms. Now the majority of that ministry of protecting the flock, the majority of that is done from this pulpit. And it's done in other places of teaching, in our discipleship classes, in our connection groups. Those, those are some of the main areas. But there, there, are others that, that can, there are other ways that we can do that. It's by recommending solid and sound authors, podcasters. And Pastor Greg and myself, we've been putting together an updated list of recommended reading and listening. We hope to have that list on our website soon so that you can go and you can see links to books. You can see links to podcasts. If you like, you can just click on We'll have, we hope to have some available here in the, out in the, in the, the foyer by the welcome desk. If you want to just read through a book real quick and get a, a feel for it, you can do that. And we'll have lists made that available so that you can be going to those sources that can be trusted. It's why we've been working to form a Christian education committee that would help the teaching, all, that would help all teaching ministries of this church find resources and materials that would line up with Scripture. We've been commanded in Scripture to ensure that this flock is being fed sound doctrine. And it is through the teaching of sound doctrine that the people of God will learn how to order and conduct their lives. A popular idiom says that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. In other words, right belief leads to right conduct. In his commentary, Pastor John MacArthur states, that the Bible never divorces doctrine from beauty, truth from behavior. And we see this pattern all throughout Paul's letters, even in the ones where he does emphasize doctrine, such as his letter to the Romans. He always follows up with an exhortation to their conduct. After presenting 11 chapters 
of basic New Testament doctrine in the book of Romans, Paul then says to the believers at Rome, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Which is where Paul was going with his statement in Titus, verse, in Titus 2, verse 1. He is encouraging Titus to preach the gospel message in such a way that it brings spiritual health and growth. And that is what we will see in our three remaining exhortations. And so as we take our church's temperature, that's the first checkpoint, is how is our church doing in making sure that sound doctrine is being taught? We want to we make sure that we are doing that. And as a church, be as the Bereans, search the scriptures, so that you may test what is being taught from this pulpit, that you, what is being taught in your Bible study. Make sure that what is taught accords with sound doctrine. Then we move on to the, we have three exhortations to follow that, would, that is to the church. The first one, we see an exhortation to the aged, to the elderly, to the older saints in the congregation. Now I could explain, I could find myself in a whole heap of trouble if I go around and start classifying in our congregation who is considered young and not young. Very mature. I'm going to do my best to present what Paul had in mind, and we can extrapolate from there those of us who belong in what category. Let me begin by saying that the Bible speaks very highly of those who are advanced in age. Job 12, 12 tells us that wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. In giving his commands to Moses, the Lord says in Leviticus 19, 32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And in the book of Proverbs, it reminds us about the beauty of that unwanted gray hair. As we read Proverbs 16, 31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And Proverbs 20, 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. The first category that Paul speaks to is to the older men. Now, if we were to look at how the word older is used in other examples, both in Scripture and extra-biblical sources, it can be assumed that Paul is referring to to those who are 60 years and above, as this is the same word that he used to describe himself when he was in his 60s. Others have suggested, other writings have suggested that it could be men as young as 50. Now, I'm getting closer to that age. I have not surpassed it, as some of our youth might think. I can appreciate the talk of getting older and some of the challenges that come with it. But for the Christian, getting older should mean a deepening of our love for Christ and his church. Again, Pastor MacArthur says, those who have walked with Christ for many years should rejoice in that privilege and in the prospect of one day seeing him face to face. Now, of course, we know that being older does not automatically make a person wise or worthy of honor, which is why Paul admonishes these older men 
to make sure that they exemplify certain basic virtues. So we're going to break down some of these virtues to be followed by then the instructions for the older women. And by doing so, we are taking, again, our church's temperature to see if we're fulfilling our duties as prescribed by God in his holy word. The first virtue that Paul commends to Titus is that the older men be sober-minded. Other translations use the word temperate or to be clear-minded. Now, within this, there is certainly the admonition to be free from intoxication. But it extends further than the overconsumption of alcohol, but rather avoiding the temptation to overindulgence or extravagance in every aspect of life. As one commentator put it, its, its figurative extension here means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness, such as excess, passion, rashness, confusion. This is a call to be restrained in conduct, self-control, level-headed. As we mature, we should be able to discern more clearly which things are of greatest importance and value. If you need a visual or you want to understand the implications of this, give a child $100 and set them loose in a convenience store and see what they come out with. There you will see what unrestrained inhibitions look like. The older we get, we learn to prioritize and value our time, our thoughts, and our resources better, and we set them toward things that will be of greater service to God and His kingdom. Secondly, older men are to be dignified. Bill Mounts suggests that this word, dignified, signifies that which lifts the mind from the cheap and tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth. The Greek word denotes someone who is honorable and honest. So if you hear that word dignified, you might be thinking, well, I'm far from dignified. Because we think, sometimes we think of dignified as referring to social status or class. We think of the lords and ladies of Downton Abbey looking down upon their working class servants. But this carries more the weight of seriousness and solemnity than it does haughtiness. You don't have to be high class to be dignified. It's about not being immature or frivolous or superficial. A man who is dignified thinks much of the Lord and thinks much on the Lord. Concerned of matters of holiness and worthy of respect. And then older men are to be self-controlled. This is very similar to being sober-minded, but whereas sober-minded tends to reflect our overindulgence of what we bring in into both, our, into both our minds and our bodies, being self-controlled can be seen as being careful of what we exert from ourselves. This can mean not being given over to fits of rage or anger, it can mean having discernment over physical passions and rejecting worldly standards. This could be anything from turning off the television to spend more time in the Word or making sure that work or recreational activities do not take the place of corporate worship or family worship. And then the final exhortation to the older men is to be sound in faith, 
in love and in steadfastness. This triad of virtues is one of the common themes that we find in Paul's letters. Most famously, we have Paul writing to the Corinthians where he says, So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three. Now here Paul uses the word hope instead of steadfastness. But what is steadfastness or patience if it's not hope? To be steadfast, to be patient, to persevere is, as one author says, to endure hardship, to accept disappointment and failure, to be satisfied despite thwarted personal desires and plans. This is what hope means, to long for the day of our reward and our eternal inheritance. Older men should be seen as beacons pointing others to hope and faith in Christ. In love toward God and his people and in the hope of the resurrection. To the older men, would this describe you? As you mature in age, are you maturing in Christ? Are you someone that the young men of this church can come to for wisdom, for advice, for encouragement in the Lord? Not just wisdom on how to fix a car, how to build something with your hands, how to throw a baseball. Now, it's great to teach young men these skills. It's, it's, it's great to teach young men life skills. But being a hard worker does not equate being a godly man. Are we focused more on teaching our young men and even our own children to be hard workers, or are we focused on teaching them to be godly? Because here's the thing. If we teach them to be godly, they'll be hard workers. A godly man will produce a hard worker, so let's make sure that we're modeling godly living as the older men in the church. Next, Paul shifts his attention to the older women. Now, this is probably where I should really be careful in describing who's considered old. Again, based on different sources that I read, it appears that the best interpretation and understanding of who fits this category would be those women who are 60 and older. Again, this would be those who have moved beyond child-rearing age, who no longer have children in the home who they are raising, and thus their attention would be on discipling younger women in the church. But before they can fulfill this responsibility, they must first see if they are presenting themselves as someone worthy of such a calling. Now let me be clear before we move on that all Christian men and women are called to this responsibility. When I say worthy of such a calling, that is not to suggest that some are not called to teach and disciple the younger men and women in this church. All older saints in the church are called in the, to this in some regard. So in verse 3, we read, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. After the address of the older women, the first word we come upon is likewise. Much like Titus is to exhort the older men in, to ministry, he is to exhort the older women to ministry just as, and just as with the men, there is a standard in that ministry. And the standards are pretty much identical, just with some different words being used. So let's look at the characteristics that are given then now to the older women. 
Robert Yarborough, in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, he points out that Paul refers to a range of four characteristics or tendencies. Behavior, speech, appetite, and teaching competence. The first is the most general and may be an umbrella under which to regard the other three. As the first of these is reverence in behavior. Now, this could be held alongside the call to the older men to be dignified. Because the word reverence signifies holiness, submitting that older women are to be godly in all their conduct. As another author writes, the simple meaning is that we must take seriously the fact that we belong to God. Now, what does this godly living look like? What are some practical applications that Paul gives to the older women? Well, the first of these is to not be slanderers. Now, other translations use the phrase false accusers or malicious gossips. And if you're going to take that translation of gossip, it might be tempting to think, well, boy, this is a very uh, sexist or misogynistic thing for Paul to say, insinuating that only, or to single out, that only women gossip. Paul is not suggesting that only women gossip. But it is common enough for Paul to include it, not only in this list, but he puts it in his requirements for deacons' wives or deaconesses, depending on how you read and interpret 1 Timothy 3.11. But it's not just, so if we're looking at the gossip, it's not just gossip. There's, there's much more seriousness to what Paul is talking about. He doesn't just say gossip. He says, and if you look at the translations that use the word gossip, it says malicious gossip. Or as the ESV translated it, slanderer. The word that is used in the Greek for slanderer is diabolos. It's the feminine form of the word translated devil. Many times in scripture, Satan is referred to as the accuser. This is the connotation that's given here, instructing the older women to not, not only to not be spreading slander or demeaning words about others, but don't even entertain it. Do not listen to those who would talk in such a way to do so is to go against the commands in scripture to encourage one another in hebrews 3 to build one another to build up one another in first thessalonians 5 to serve one another with love in galatians 5 or to live with one another in harmony romans 12 you cannot do those things when you're tearing one another down with false accusations secondly the older women are warned against being slaves to much wine. This would seem to coincide with the admonition to the older men to be sober-minded and temperate. But here he specifically, Paul specifically referred to the sin of drunkenness. It's, this must have been an issue there in that setting for Paul to feel the need to address it. Much like today, as people get older, they might turn to alcohol as a means of alleviating pain or dealing with loneliness and depression. And so what Paul is talking about here is being enslaved to strong drink. Now, while this would be a caution for any believer, it's, it's given here to show how significant it would be for an older saint to bring dishonor to the Lord and to his church by causing others to follow in their example. Now, there could be, there, we could certainly have an entire sermon on dealing with the sin of drunkenness, but for now... 
We're going to leave it as the counsel given to not have your life ruled by wine or drink. And I will offer this one cautionary piece of advice that if you find yourself having to regularly defend against alcohol ruling your life, then it might be ruling your life. And then the third and final instruction given to older women is to teach what is good. Now, the idea being now that they have taught their own children well, their responsibility now shifts to the younger women in the church, which we'll get to in, in, in just a moment about what they are to teach. But we see there is the expectation that the older women will be teaching others. You're not done teaching when your children are grown and out of the home. Your ministry is not done. No Christian retires from ministry. You continue to serve. It might be you might you might shift your focus from one ministry to another, but you're you're not done serving. Find ways, older women, find the younger women that you can minister to. And older men, we're going to see that in just a minute with the younger men. That we need, we need to be finding these partnerships of mentoring. That is our responsibility as a church. And then with this exhortation comes what is sort of the elephant in the room of many theological discussions, the idea of who and where the women are to teach. When we read Paul's other pastoral epistles, we know that he instructed Timothy, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. And then he also wrote to the Corinthians, as in, the, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. And again come the cries of Paul was a misogynistic, toxic male. What Paul was, was a student and teacher of God's infallible and inerrant word, and the writings that we have of his in Scripture are, were under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. When Paul wrote those words to Timothy and to the church at Corinth, and then here to Titus, he was writing with the backdrop of Genesis 3 in mind. Paul understood that mankind was created by a God of order and that man and woman were given different and distinct roles while being equal in value to God. Hear this instruction from Pastor John Piper. Sin didn't create manhood and womanhood. God did. And sin did not bring diversified, complementary roles into existence. God did. Before sin ever entered the world, God ordained and fitted Adam to be a loving, caring, strong leader for his wife Eve. And before sin entered the world, God ordained and fitted Eve to be a partner who supports and honors that leadership and helps carry it through. Both in the image of God, both equal in their godlike personhood, but also different in their manhood and womanhood. And God created marriage to be an earthly picture of how God relates to his people, with the husband being the shepherd as Christ is, and the wife being the church, the bride of Christ. When sin entered the world, 
we see one of the curses that was given to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, which is how the King James and the NASB translate it. But the ESV gives us a better rendering where he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, meaning that Eve and all womanhood would reject the authority of her husband and would therefore desire to be in his God-ordained role. So let us try to understand, albeit quickly, as we do have more in this passage to get to, what did Paul mean? By saying that women should be silent is not that they should never say anything in church, that they should never say anything to their husbands. The quietness is meant to be a, to reflect the contrast of exercising authority. Again, quoting uh, Pastor John Piper, Quietness means not speaking in a way that compromises that authority. And when Paul says he does not permit a woman to teach, he means in situations where she would be exercising authority over men. That is why we believe that women are not to fill the office of pastor or elder. But it doesn't mean that women can never teach in the context of the church. In fact, that is what this passage today is highlighting. Women have a highly valuable role to teach the younger women in the church. And I would add this to those who would say that it doesn't seem very equal for men to be expected to work, to provide for their family, while the women are expected to take care of the home and their children. I would challenge your idea of what you think is valuable. The satanic cult of feminism builds its church on the confession that taking care of the home is an unworthy task. And we have seen the slippery slope of feminism, which began with a bucking of male authority, to the devaluing the role of women in the home, to now a devaluing of human life in the Holocaust that is abortion. The role of women in the home and the church is highly valuable. I heard one pastor say that if you don't care about equipping women to teach other women, then you don't have a healthy church. So again, we check our church's temperature. How are we doing, older women, older men? Which then leads us to our second, or our second of the final three exhortations, an exhortation to the young. With this, with, with this exhortation, we begin with the young women. As that is the natural transition that Paul makes as he's talking about the calling of older women. He's saying, older women, you are to teach. What are you to teach to the younger women? That's what he leads into. They ought to be teaching them. First of all, we see the first instruction is to love their husbands and children. So it's obvious that the young women here that Paul is referring to in this context are wives and mothers. That is not to exclude those whom God may give the gift of singleness or those who have endured the trial of barrenness. But it does serve to point to the expectation that God builds his kingdom on earth through godly families. One of Satan's biggest attacks on the church today is through the family. 
Much like he deceived Eve by asking the question, did God really say? He is now deceiving the women of today by asking the same question in regard to loving your husband. In a culture that wants to shout, love is love, and that you can love who you want, when you want, how you want, we shout back, no, you don't get to define love. It was defined by a holy God. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, willing to lay down their lives. And wives are to love their husbands through submission, just as the bride of Christ submits to our shepherd. But it's not just your husbands that you are commanded to love, young women. It is your children, too. Now, this shouldn't be a hard thing to comprehend, but then we stand amazed that women would gleefully sacrifice their unborn children on the altar of freedom and selfishness. Younger women find a mature believer who has been married for a long time, who has raised multiple kids, and glean everything you can from her. If you have a godly mother and she wants to give you advice on how to raise your children, listen to her. Don't be so prideful to spurn wisdom from those who have been in your shoes. Well, after this commentary on the family, Paul proceeds to direct Titus to instruct the young women in five traits beginning again with this phrase, this word, self-controlled. The same word that's used in the exhortation to the older men, the older women. It refers to using good sense and judgment, which should certainly be present in the more mature in age, but it should be evident even in early adulthood. It was probably just as much of an issue in Paul's day for all people to struggle with unholy impulses and tendencies. So he writes to Titus, which is for all of us, for the young women today, be self-controlled. Secondly, he tells the young women to be pure. Now, while the word that is used here can denote chastity, and that sense cannot be ruled out completely, it can also, and more likely, be referring to faithfulness to one's spouse. It can also refer to a sense of moral and legal innocence and theological or ethical excellence. It's a distancing of oneself from all things that would defile both mind and body. Young women are to be pure in heart and in mind. And then thirdly, Paul says for young women to be working at home. Pastor MacArthur writes, one of the hardest things for many contemporary wives to do is to be satisfied with being a homemaker. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say that it is a sin for a wife to have a job. In some cases, it is necessary. I think that the caution here is to exercise sound judgment as to how much time can be justifiably and wisely spent working outside the home and not forsaking the duties that God has called you to. Is it necessary to meet basic needs? Or is it so the the family can maintain a certain lifestyle? Is it for a season due to illness or loss of job? Or is it because the husband doesn't want to work? Society wants to portray women who have chosen to listen to godly counsel and stay at home and take care of the children as being oppressed, as being victims. 
The true victims are those who have been deceived by the satanic lies of this culture that women must be liberated from God and from the home. And then next, young women are instructed to be kind. Now, I think the meaning behind this one is pretty obvious. And it's certainly not a trait reserved for the young women alone. Kindness, after all, is listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. But due to the use of the word in the context of this writing, Paul is likely referring to women, to the young women, to be kind at home, serving your family with joy, being kind to your spouse, being kind to your, excuse me, to your children. And then finally, we have the instruction for young women to be submissive to their own husbands. This is in direct correlation to what Paul writes in the Ephesians, to, writes to the Ephesians, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. One thing I would like to point out is that the scriptures never command for a husband to demand submission. But it is commanded for a wife to give it. What is being instructed here is that wives ought to live in line with their husband's loving leadership. Submission is an expression of love and appreciation for husbands who are fulfilling their role to shepherd and provide for their family. What if the husband isn't a believer? Or what if he is a believer who just won't lead? Now, first of all, let me say, I'm not talking about a husband that is abusive. That, there, that, that is a different situation. And I would say to anybody that was in a situation that is dealing with abuse, there, you need to talk to someone. I'm talking about a husband who just does, is, not, is, not a, is not a Christian or a husband who is a Christian but is not fulfilling his responsibility given by God to lead the family. Is a wife still to submit? Yes. God does not give us as his children any caveats when he tells us to submit to governing authorities. He doesn't say only if they're Christian. We submit to our governing bodies. The same here. So what would, I, what would I say then to those who would say, well, what if my husband is a believer, is not a believer, or if he won't lead? Submit and pray and encourage. If your husband isn't a believer, pray for him. If he is and won't lead, then encourage him to lead. And this is where we are talking about, this is why we say do we do this as a church. If you're a young woman who you, you desire your husband to to, to, to Fulfill his scriptural duty to lead your family well, and he's not. Pray for him. Find an older woman that you can go to for godly counsel, and hopefully what would happen is that godly woman, the older woman, would then go to her husband and say, there's a young man that needs you. Go and encourage him. And then we have the older men then going and discipling and teaching and training the younger men. That is what we as a church do. We are a family that builds up and encourages and loves and lifts each other up. Paul then ends this exhortation with the phrase that the word of God may not be reviled. This shows the priority in all that we do 
is that God be glorified. The way we live is a testimony of God's working in and through us. When our lives contradict what God says, it invites the world to offer its criticism of his word, and that is something that no Christian has a right to do. Young women, fulfill your God-ordained duties that he might get glory. And then to the last gendered age group that we have mentioned, it is the young men. They are urged and encouraged to be self-controlled. Paul recognizes that one of the biggest struggles that we all face is to be self-controlled. Just as the older men, young men are not to be driven by their impulses. They are to be discerning and sober in their judgments. In striving to be holy, young men must have focus. And it's a hard thing to do in this day and age where our brains are trained to only handle short bursts of information. I've told a number of young men in the past month that leaders are readers. If you want to be a godly leader, be it in your church, in your home, in your place of business, be a reader. Especially of God's word, but not only of God's word. Read other Christian authors. Read history books. Read fiction books. Reading trains our minds to focus, and young men need focus. Well, as we get to verse 7, Paul's instructions seem to shift a little bit more directly onto Titus, and not necessarily to all the young men, but any young man that would aspire to be an elder or a pastor or any spiritual leader ought to take note of what Paul says to him. Titus is told to be a model of good works. The word model, which is tapos in the Greek, where we get our word type. It literally means a stamp or an impression left by an instrument such as a pen or a hammer. Young men, what impression has God made on you that is visible to others? In all your dealings, you are to reflect Christ. To profess Christ but not project Christ is to be a hypocrite. Live what you claim to believe. And then the final instruction given to Titus is to show integrity and dignity in what he teaches and what he says. And this goes back to the very beginning, at the beginning of the chapter, where he said, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If you want to teach the word, you better know the word. Consume it, devour it, get it into you in whatever ways that you can. Read it for yourself. Sit under the faithful teaching and attend sound Bible studies. Be so full of God's word that you can't help but pour it out into others. And again, when Paul refers to dignity, he's not talking about stuffiness or haughtiness. It means being able to tell the difference between what is important and what is trivial. It means recognizing the seriousness of what is being taught. And then finally, he says, have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now that word here for speech, he's referring not to teaching, a formal teaching. He's talking about everyday conversation. Paul's encouraging Titus to give consideration to everything he says. That he would be above reproach in all that comes out of his mouth. That he would not be given to unwholesome talk, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, or obscene talk, as he told the Colossians. 
As much as you can be a hypocrite by your actions not matching your words, so too can your actions be undone by corrupting words. Well, as we conclude this section to the age and gender groups, again, we have this charge to check our church's temperature. Our older men, women, are you fulfilling your God-given duties? Younger women, younger men, are you fulfilling the roles, the duties, responsibilities that God has called you to? There's one final exhortation that we're going to look at this morning. One that might not seem to have as much correlation to today's world, but there is still value in its counsel, and it's an exhortation to the slave. In verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Slavery was common in the Roman Empire, so writing this to first century Christians was certainly relevant. That's not to say that this section isn't relevant today. But our Western culture is not faced with the issue of slavery as much as early Americans were or maybe as other parts of the world currently are. But as, so as we read these verses, we are still going to find that Paul has something to say to us. So when he writes, he's not writing to address the condition of slavery. He's not talking about its fairness, its morality, is it right or wrong. He's not passing judgment on slavery. But he's simply acknowledging that it exists. He's saying this is the way the world currently is. This is the way you as Christians ought to behave in it. The fact that he doesn't do so does not mean that Paul condones or, agree, or agrees with it. But what he is dealing with is how Christian slaves or bond servants are to behave toward their masters. Paul wrote about the same thing in his first letter to Timothy. He said, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have been or those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since, they, since those who are benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, the difference in this passage and the one that he wrote to Timothy is that there is no distinction given to what kind of master they are serving, whether it be a believer or unbeliever. Whichever situation they find themselves in, they are to serve their masters well. Now, before we get into how they do that, how are we to understand this today? I think the simplest way is for us to recognize that in any society, there will be those who are being served and there will be those who do the serving. In almost every occupation, you find yourself serving another person, be it a customer or a boss. So the guidance that is given can be applied to those situations as well. So first we see the command to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. In other instances in the New Testament, that the word that is translated well-pleasing is used in reference to being acceptable and pleasing to God, which should draw a natural correlation that in all of our conduct, we should live unto the Lord. In serving others, our attitude should be one that reflects our relationship with Christ. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then Paul says that bond servants are not to be argumentative. 
But we live in a society where argumentative is almost treated like a virtue. Standing your ground on biblical convictions is one thing. But when we are just focused on asserting our way, our rights, our own self-interest, we are not displaying a Christian attitude. There are ways to express grievances and opinions without doing disservice to the name of Christ. And the next command is for servants to not pilfer. Now this, of course, is referring to acquiring wealth through ill-gotten gains. He's talking about not stealing, not being dishonest in business. Christians are to be trustworthy people, and they are to be faithful in their service. Christians should be known as reliable and dependable. And all of this is done so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Just as with all the other exhortations that have been given, we follow them not just because we are told to or because there is some mutual benefit to us, but because it brings glory to God. Our lives are to be a testimony to the unbelievers of what God has done for us. We are to tell them both by our words and our deeds that our God is a God who saves. So in all of these exhortations, there is something for everyone who professes Christ. For those who do not have Christ as Savior, the message is, come to Him. He can put in you a new heart that will desire to serve Him in the ways that we've just explained. If you don't know Jesus, you'll be able to look around this room and find people whose lives have been marked by Him. If you do profess Christ, You've been given a checkup today. We have taken your temperature. How are we doing? Are we useful to God's kingdom? Or are we lukewarm? Let us continue to encourage one another, to build up one another. As the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us pray. Our glorious and matchless King, we give you praise for your word that we have received today. God, I pray that we would be moved by it to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That includes our closest neighbors, our wives and husbands, our children. May we grow in service to you by building up your kingdom through the strengthening of your church. May all that we do bring honor and glory to your holy name. Amen.